Why do you love it so much? I think if you own your own business, you have to be prepared to take risks. Being a woman doesn't hold you back from achieving success. Yep, so if you're struggling, just stop and pause and, and really reflect on why am I struggling here. But I've also worked really hard and telling me it's luck, I think, just takes away some of that recognition of the hard work. One last question. Welcome to Tea with the Queen, a show where I talk with some of my favourite go-getters, inspiring and courageous women in leadership and business. I'm your host, Emma McQueen. I'm a business coach, executive coach, author and speaker. And for 20 years, I've been working with women to unlock their potential and get paid their worth while doing work they love. I'm so pleased to be able to share with you today's guest, who I've known for many years. She was once my neighbour, as you'll hear, and we've kept a tight bond ever since. The wonderful person I'm talking about is Div Pillay who's had a remarkable journey personally and professionally. She's the ultimate go-getter. She's a board member. She's national chair of the Diversity and Inclusion Committee of AmCham, a judge at the Telstra Business Women's Awards, and she's CEO of MindTribes, an organisation which helps build high-performing teams by embracing the diversity in their people. Such an inspiration. I'm sure you'll enjoy this chat. Thank you, Div, for joining us today. I'm so excited to have you on the podcast, and I know that my audience are going to take so many things away from our conversation. Oh, thanks for having me, Em. I'm really pleased. It's a long time coming, yeah? Yes, a long, too long, too long. I've got so many questions to ask you, but I want to make it as relevant to our audience as possible. And maybe we'll start here. You're originally from South Africa. Tell me, what was it like to grow up there, particularly as someone of Indian descent? What was it like? It was kind of like living in a bubble. So it was, we were segregated by race. So we grew up in the apartheid era when people were segregated into land areas based on the color of their skin. So Indian people lived in Indian areas, black people lived in black areas, coloreds and white. Um, And you can probably imagine that the more disadvantaged people lived in the outskirts and that's where we lived Um, and we didn't really question it growing up and that's why I say it's a bubble because we went to an Indian school, we read Indian newspapers, we uh, watched Indian TV on channels because the other channels weren't uh, accessible. So we just grew up accepting that that was the norm. It was only when I got to university that I realised okay, this is actually quite grossly unfair. And that's that's how I can best describe it. But our parents did a very good job of making us really humble and grateful for the things we had. I would still count myself as pretty privileged because we got a really good education and our parents told us that education is, is a pathway and we believed them and we stuck to it and here we are. So... I can say that there were many more disadvantaged people than us, so I'm pretty grateful for what we've got and had. Yeah, I love that. I love that. And I I know that we're going to talk about that a little bit later in our interview, but what brought you to Australia? What brought us mainly was the fact that I was pregnant with our son, uh, who's 17, and I very much um, remember 
shortly after giving birth that we met in Paran in our apartment when you moved in from Perth and I moved all the way from South Africa and it was our first place in Australia and so I'm, I'm pretty proud to say that we know each other for 17 years. It's a long time. It's a long time. And we came for him, to be honest, because we actually made the decision to leave South Africa within three weeks because the violence against Indians started to rise because we had emerged through, even through apartheid, into a middle class. And we, because of our education, that's the main thing that gave us access to jobs. And... It was just alarming the rates of home invasions and carjackings and I had been a victim of a carjacking where I was taken for about eight hours. So when those things happen and it actually touches your level of safety um, and I was already pregnant, we decided to put in for our application to Australia and it came in pretty quickly. And we decided within three weeks to leave and nobody expected it. I left six and a half months pregnant and we never looked back. So uh, it was a big, huge step and I would never regret it. We don't when we look at our children and our life and we, we are again very, very grateful for where we are. Um, a quick decision 17 years ago was the right one. <laughs> mm. Sometimes they are, hey, the quickest decisions. But, you know, I remember I loved being neighbours with you and I remember that <laughs> there wasn't a lot in your apartment because you had just arrived. So we pulled bean bags over and all that kind of stuff. And one of the beautiful things, one of the beautiful memories that I have is just for our audience, I choose not to cook, I think is probably best phrase. Div, Divanisha is a brilliant cook. And so I would come home at night and have Vegemite toast and Divanisha would not hear of it. She would make sure that I ate properly. <laughs> And it was beautiful. And I've, we've had a beautiful friendship ever since. It's lovely. And um, tell me tell me about Mind Tribes and tell me what it is and why you set it up. So Mind Tribes and culturally diverse workforces and women are businesses that are set up to move inclusion and inclusion of culturally diverse people mainly. So our main focus is on racial inequality and cultural exclusion of people who are migrants. We do actually cover Indigenous Australians when we work with large corporates, but it really is to progress the change that needs to be made with cultural diversity and racial inequity. And it's poised for that, and it's really a change management effort. So our work is long-term and systemic, um, and it is to get genuine inclusion not just, you know, the representational diversity. We're not interested in that. We're actually interested in if you've got people who are diverse, how do you actually make them included and feel included? And that's we see as our primary purpose. I love that. And that it's not tokenistic. Not at all. I mean, we've, we've seen a lot of tokenistic pieces of work and we often come after those token piece of work have been done. So a lot of it is on education and awareness and, you know, misplaced work, well-intentioned work. So I would think most of the executives and heads of diversity and inclusion that we work with are actually well-intentioned. It's just that they've done a disparate pieces of work, but scattered all over the business and 
some of it not well executed in the long term, really stop start kind of pieces of work. And when you look at it and you really assess it for its return on investment, it hasn't actually changed the inequity gap. It hasn't moved culturally diverse people to be, feel more included. And that is our biggest aha moment when we speak to executives. We go, well, let's really audit that and look at that. And when we look into it, almost every single client has, hasn't really had any movement uh, that's negligible. And that's the thing that we go after. We go, well, let's put our investment incorrectly and let's drive it all the way so we can measure that impact. And that's the true systemic work. And not a lot of diversity and inclusion consultants really stay for the long haul with clients and we're interested in that good work. Yeah, it's interesting because it sounds like it's basically a jigsaw puzzle and they're picking out the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle but without the whole puzzle. Yeah, absolutely. And it's also about having a very human-centric design. So often these decisions for the selection of the programs are, you know, training or leadership development is really taken without the representation of culturally diverse people in the decision-making process. So, you know, something is designed for with the good intent of inclusion, but without that human-centric design. So the voice of that person is not even there. So when it gets delivered, it isn't hitting the mark, really. And it's not answering what do culturally diverse people and people of different races actually need. It's such a simple question. What do they need? Do they need an assessment of their gaps in pay? Do they need to understand how to progress their careers within organizations? Do they need to feel more included in their teams? What do they need? And no one's asking those simple fundamental questions. And it really hampers the experience of people when they see these top level leadership programs come into place. And they're glad that leaders are learning about their unconscious bias and what to do, but they just can't see their leaders doing it. So then you go, well, we've lost the plot, haven't we? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so tricky and maybe a leading question, but for my audience, I really want them to understand how, how does diversity benefit a business specifically or society in general? I'd really like my audience to understand that. I think it's diversity and inclusion. So it's, if you had to imagine that diversity is, you know, the, the colors in a, in a pencil box so all the colors are represented and if inclusion is using those colors to create a fantastic picture where all the colors are included that really is what we need to do so when you think about teams coming together you really want to make sure that it's as diverse as you can have it and we go after not just race and cultural diversity and ethnicity we go after an intersection of all diversities because if you're going to look at a high performing team you want to make sure that there's no homogenous group think going on uh, you want diverse backgrounds you want diverse thinking different sector experience you want different generations you want everything you can possibly get to make up those colors so that's what we we really assess and we assess it almost like a heat map perspective to understand which teams are actually more homogenous than those that are more diverse and we go after making change for that and when you do that when you have diversity represented you really then have diverse thinking and ideas come up 
And that's what you need for innovation, for growth. We need all of those to come together. And the inclusion part is making sure that even though you have all those diversities represented, everyone has a voice. And that's what we see is the hardest piece to work at is that almost every team that we work with is quite diverse in its makeup. People are represented, but whether their voice is included is a whole nother piece because you have the dominant voices in the group. And just because somebody is quiet doesn't mean that they don't have the right ideas. It could be that there's such a power struggle between those people who talk more and those people who talk less that they just get ignored. So we really work at, that's the measurement of true inclusion when everyone's voice is respected they're connected and they feel like they're confident to say whatever they need to say, even if it's a challenging idea. And when you have that, you then have a high-performing team that even in times of pressure, people can bring their best out. And if you're not encouraging that, then you're you're losing untapped talent, really. You'll never know what you're missing, to be honest, until someone feels it it's so uncomfortable that they leave. And that's, you know, the true measure to answer your question is that diversity is represented then included and if it's included then we can actually measure the impact to people's productivity their engagement the innovation in terms of thinking the execution in terms of delivery of great pieces of work and that's what we're after and it's amazing you and i have been in hr for a long long time and that's the hardest nut to crack we're still going back to basics about how we really make people feel included yeah, so I, I, I think it's absolutely beneficial. It's just that we haven't done it yet. Yeah. And I'm curious about at what point does someone reach out to Mind Tribes and say, hey, we've got a problem? And is it at the senior levels? And I'm just curious about how you educate those senior people along the way, because obviously they have quite an impact in the business. Yeah. Um, so we either get it from a grassroots perspective. So we get people of colour who are kind of mid to senior career coming to us and they want to actually start something in their business for other people who are like them. So they, they would um, you know, want to start an employee resource group, um, you know, we're working with a couple at the moment and they're either women of colour networks inside an organisation or culturally and linguistically diverse networks. So we've got a grassroots movement, yes, so we get that. In the wake of the Black Lives Matters movement, we've had a number of senior executives come to us in trying to understand it, one, for themselves, but two, in trying to understand what they should do for their teams. Uh, is it just a comms exercise? Should they just talk about it in their team meetings? Or a lot of the executives come to us pretty sure that racism doesn't exist, but they just want to make sure that they can make sure that people know that they don't stand for racism. It is normally a good conversation to have because we go, well, how do you know for sure that racism doesn't exist? You know, what makes you say that? And often they go, well, our engagement scores are very high. And I'm sure if our engagement scores were low or uh, we haven't had a complaint yet, we've got a race and discrimination, anti-discrimination policy and no one's complained to HR. And I go, yep, it still doesn't mean it doesn't exist, does it? Yeah, so we, we often get that or we get diversity and inclusion councils set up with a lot of people across the business joining. And one of the largest ones we're working with is a large pharmaceutical and they have about... 25 people on their diversity and inclusion council 
all people with good intent, all with different interests in diversity, some with gender, some with LGBTQ, some with, you know, diverse abilities, with age, all interested in doing something. And we find that there's little governance there because HR sits on those diversity councils. They run International Women's Day. They'll do Harmony Week, Pride Week, and they do activities. It's almost like events. And then we question what is actually being done for the employee experience? You know, do you actually know? So we get it top down and bottom up, uh, but we get it from, you know, invitations for me to speak potentially, you know, at their some sort of employee event. And that's a great way for me to ask the right questions. You know, why do you want me to speak? What problem are you trying to solve? And often they don't even know they have a problem. So I'd say in about 80% of times that we get some sort of request to speak or support with a little workshop, we unravel it and understand really what the problem is because I'm that kind of person. So I'll, I'll, I'll never want to do anything that's going to pay lip service um, and do a disservice to the people who are potentially feeling excluded. So I will go after it. It's so interesting, isn't it? Because when you were talking about employee engagement scores and no one's left yet or no one's put in a complaint, they're all lag indicators. There's no lead indicators there to say, hey, what about this, which I find kind of fascinating. I mean, it's really interesting because I think it's come a long way. Ten years ago when we were talking about diversity, it was just about gender, right? It was just about gender. And so I'm very glad that it's, we've moved the dial, but I don't feel like we've moved the dial as much as what we could have. And I suppose that's – I'm wondering, and maybe my next question will share this, but I'm wondering how you feel about the slow movement uh, because it doesn't feel like it's as quick as what it possibly could be. Your credentials are amazing. Not only are you the CEO of Mind Tribes, you're the co-founder of Culturally Diverse Women and Workforces. You're the National Chair of the Diversity and Inclusion Committee of AmCham. You're a board member of Street, which aims to stop homelessness and disadvantage. And you also happen to be a state judge with the 2020 Telstra Businesswoman's Awards. Oh, my goodness. Every time anyone meets you and then they come back to me and say, Div Pillay's amazing. I'm like, I know. <laughs> But what drives you? What drives you and the work that you do? What drives me is just making change wherever I can. And while those many hats might make people go, whoa, that's a lot, I'm using my influence to mobilize others. So my majority of my time, of course, goes to our business, uh, Mind Tribes and Culturally Diverse Women and Workforces. And my national chair role with American Chamber of Commerce is one where I can have kind of top-down influence and mobilization of people. I have around about 17 senior leaders that sit on my council nationally. And they're from amazing brands, you know, large telcos, banks that work across the US and Australia, you know, airlines and large legal firms. So it is a way for me to make change through those people, because when I set the agenda for the kinds of dialogues that we need to create in those organizations and in the business community at large, it gives me that push that I I can have an influence so I take those opportunities and with street you know I'm very much uh, a social impact person so when I heard that 25% of 
youth in Victoria are homeless and they come from a um, or 25 percent of streets youth are killed refugees asylum seekers and migrants I felt the need to be the voice in the room for that 25 percent and street does an amazing job with the way they reskill and retrain and support young people they really it's really an empowerment piece and that sits well with me because I love teaching people how to fish rather than you know that's a strong skill-based way of empowerment and it very values aligned with me and there is one actually that you forgot I'm a plan international ambassador so of course I, um, of course yeah. you are <laughs> and that's very very aligned <laughs> yes that's very aligned yeah so very very aligned and um, we give 10% of all our new deals from mine tribes towards plan international uh, next move for us is to keep supporting girls we sponsor six uh, in different countries uh, one for every one of our children but also three for the various countries that our clients work in so india the philippines and africa so we we really made a, a steady commitment to that and um, it's really a lifelong commitment that i'll make to empowering girls in developing countries people think it's a lot of stuff but it's it's really all values aligned all towards harnessing others to be more inclusive and i feel it's like my purpose so i have to do it <laughs> <laughs> yeah well what i was actually thinking is um you know i talk a lot to a lot of my clients about passion and purpose meeting right and you're like the epitome of your passion and purpose connected and aligned but i can see through all of the positions that you have how you weave it all through. And I suppose the question for me is there must be a filter that you look through opportunities through and go, is this going to advance what we need to advance? Am I going to be able to influence at the right end, et cetera, et cetera. And my thought from my previous question was about, are you happy with how quickly this thing's moving? But I think the question, the more positive spin on that is, do you feel optimistic about the future and increased empowerment of people of different cultural backgrounds and is it happening quickly enough for you I, I suspect the answer is no but I wanted to give you the opportunity <laughs> oh look you know me um, I'm always impatient so <laughs> <laughs> I'm hungry for change of I run at a frenetic pace so I think most people I've got to temper my expectations because I do think that I I want it faster and I'm more urgent and others are not as urgent but even in saying that, I do think it has been glacially slow. And even with something as sensitive and, you know, gut-wrenching as watching George Floyd die in May and all the impacts and conversations that happened with racial inequity in Australia, still it has died down. And that's what's sad is that, you know, we don't know enough about Indigenous young people in jail. We haven't really got true reconciliation action plans in most corporate organisations. There's still so much work to be done in this space. And it's really, really tough to get that as a top priority for a large business to get that on their top list. And it, 
it takes a lot of business casing and nudging and several conversations. And and I'm one of the very few voices that have been on it for so long. So from a cultural diversity and inclusion in the workplace perspective, when I first started out around six or seven years ago, focusing in on this area, no one understood what I was talking about. They were really about, look, look, yes, we understand that, but gender is really something that we're focusing on, not now, later. And this is the whole reason we started Culturally Diverse Women, because we said, if you're moving the, the effort on gender, then include all women. Don't just work on some women. And we really pushed the envelope. So it was very strategic focusing on and, and even naming it Culturally Diverse Women, because it's a great conversation starter. Yes, you're focusing on gender and what about all sorts of women? And so we have really, really moved. When I think I feel slow, I look back at seven years and I go, well, we've done quite a bit and I should be happy with that. But you know, I never am, so I keep pushing (laughs) more. (laughs) I never am. And I think it's important to actually have a disruptive voice in the market it really is. And I do it with respect as well. I, I never want to make people feel guilty for not doing something. I'd rather have a positive conversation to say, how can I help you? What do you need? Then I know it's genuine. And how can I bring you along to walk along with me? And that's the approach that I've always taken. So I've, I've been disruptive, yes, but not disrespectful. Yeah. I would never frame you as disrespectful. Um, (laughs) It's been such a fascinating conversation. And I'm curious, as we close out, what's a question that you would have liked me to ask you today? When can we make a date to meet (laughs) and have dinner together? (laughs) I know. COVID needs to F off first. (laughs) (laughs) I need to hold your little girl uh, and have her on my lap. That's what I need. Um, she is not so little anymore, Divs. I, just, I know. I, I did say to her before this, I'm getting on uh, doing the podcast and I'm doing it with Annie Divs. And she goes, my cake. I'm like, yes, your first birthday <laughs> cake, because mama doesn't cook, your first birthday cake that Divs made for you. She's like, the ladybug. I'm like, yes. <laughs> oh, my gosh, she remembers. Oh, my gosh. Oh, well, I just think, you know, we should, if the pandemic has taught us, anything is the value of relationships and yours and mine goes back a long way and I'm very very grateful to have you give me confidence as well because a lot of the times when I was starting the business you always I can hear your voice saying just go for it just go for it (laughs) and those little words are good when you know how hard it is with a business it is important to have those voices say just do it you can and that level of courage doesn't come without many voices making you feel courageous so i think there's nothing that i would have wanted you to ask but i think it's a good thing for your audience to know that despite all the many things that i do i'm just as vulnerable and just as weak sometimes as most everyone else and it takes courage just to pull yourself back on track And you've been one of those people to do that for me. Oh, well, and you for me. I remember when I went into my business, I was like, holy crap, here I am jumping in. And you're a few years ahead and you're like, you've got this. So, you know, it's um, beautiful that we have women supporting women 
And I really feel that from you. And, you know, I'm very thankful for you. And I'm very thankful that we could have this podcast together. Serendipity just stepped in the way on this one. And I'm (laughs) thrilled to have had you. So thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. How do people find you if they want to know more? Head to www.mindtribes.com.au or my LinkedIn. I'm a LinkedIn nut. I'm always there. So find me on there and say hello. Perfect. Thank you, Divs. Thanks, Em. That's Div Pillay. That's it for this episode of Tea with the Queen. If you love this episode, let me know. I'd love to hear from you. And you're very welcome to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps us with promoting the podcast for others to listen to inspirational topics on leadership and business. And if you want to contact me directly, all my details are at my website, emmamcqueen.com.au. Thank you.